Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Podcast 22, sponsored by WordSprint, your communication source. Hi, this is Paul Lemberg, and I want to welcome you to Orchestrating Success with Hugh Ballou. This podcast is all about ways to redefine leadership as a pathway to increasing your business or nonprofit income. Now, here's Hugh with today's session. Hi, this is Hugh Ballou. My guest today is Gaden Levitt. His friends call him G, and G, I hope I can call you that because I'm your friend, right? Absolutely. Well, I met G recently, and I just was blown away with the level of his expertise in marketing and the level of the programs that he has to offer those of us who are social entrepreneurs. We're kind of working in a, in a vacuum sometimes, and we think everybody ought to clamor to our door, but we re- really haven't developed a marketing strategy to attract those people to the value that we have. So, G. Welcome today. Thank you for having me. We have a very dedicated group of social entrepreneurs who are changing the world. We don't have a corporate job by choice because we have a value proposition that's just awesome, but we're stuck. So tell us a little more about your background and why is it that you're qualified to talk to us about marketing? I know, but give us a little snapshot for for people that that are listening today. Well, marketing is the only thing I've ever done. So there's that, <laughs> right, Hugh? But, um, you know, I, I worked at Ford doing uh, kind of in the digital agency movement. So this was in 04, 05, 06. This was before social media, you know, if you can imagine. So at that time, I was really in charge of building an internet department, uh, getting CRM and different things up and running. That was back before CRM was common, right? Uh, everyone knows what a CRM is these days, usually. Well, but maybe, one, maybe. What, what does that stand for? Tell us what that stands for. Customer relationship management software. And, and was that Ford Motor Company? Yeah. Well, this was at a, a kind of a regional group of dealerships, right? Okay. right? So I was working for them and and basically getting infrastructure in place. And the punchline is that I did that for long enough. CRM website search engines. I mean, all that stuff was new. I was on the forefront of all that. And once I got it set up for them, I knew that everyone else needed it. So I started a digital agency. Uh, Back then it wasn't called a digital agency. Now it's called digital agency. But these days, um, digital agencies are really commonplace, right? Yeah. A lot of companies that do websites, uh, search engine optimization, now social media is in the picture. Um, I was on the forefront of all that. Um, I think most people that know my background know that the real driver for what I'm doing is always being on the edge of the market, the bleeding edge of the market, right? The innovation side of the market. And so when it comes to marketing, I'm always looking for where it's going and trying to stay ahead. Love it. Love it. Let me get this straight. You do things that work in real life. This just didn't theory. (laughs) No, not at all. To give you an idea, um, I started my company January 1st, 2007. It was actually January 2nd because the the city office wasn't open January 1st, right? Mm -hmm. It was a halt. But uh, the point is, uh, 2007 was not the greatest year to start a business, turns out. Uh, 2008 rolled in. The recession took its toll, um, but I grew our company 235% four years in a row, and uh, we did 700 client engagements, well over a million dollars, and uh, we were ha- we were having a ball. You know, we were having a good time, and what happened was, you know, through the middle of a recession and growth, I I became really one of the top 
people in my field in, you know, kind of the West, as it were. It's certainly in our state, which is um, kind of the marketing capital of the universe, as it were. And so what happened was in 2012, I woke up after having done strategy and digital services for, you know, 700 customers. And I had really curated, uh, Hugh, I guess the best word is a case study, mm-hmm. like a 700 business case study, right? And I knew what was going on because I was knee deep in strategic marketing relationships with these six or 700 businesses. And so what I did was I compiled the data as it were. I put together the things that I knew were a problem. I knew people were missing. I knew, I put together, I did what I call root cause analysis. This goes way back to theory of constraints and a whole bunch of other things that I study. But the point is I did a root cause analysis to figure out what are the real problems in the SMB or small entrepreneurship type of space? What are people doing wrong? Who are they hiring? Why are they hiring them? Why are the engagements working? Why are they not working? And what happened in 2012 was I wrote a plan to solve those problems. And between then and now, I've, I've stopped those digital services and really dedicated myself to solving the problems that I found. I, um, I've, I, I do a, um, a one-day leadership empowerment symposium in one city every month. <clears throat> and I'm coming to your neighborhood. I haven't put it on the schedule yet. Um, but I find that there's common things, leader burnout, they're doing way too much. So they don't even have, have time to think about marketing. Their board is under-functioning, their staff's not functioning up to level, and they're not making the revenue that they need to achieve their vision. And so as you have done this real-life work, uh, it kind of matches what I'm seeing. And we're talking to the leaders of these, these, these movements, and the people have great ideas. So what is the leadership decision? I and mean, why shouldn't somebody just say, I'm going to hire somebody to do marketing and then forget it? Um, so what do leaders need to know about marketing to be able to make an intelligent decision about getting somebody like you engaged for their enterprise? The first thing they need to know is that hiring a marketing agency and then turning your back, uh, otherwise, in other words, outsourcing, mm-hmm delegating your responsibility to grow your company, to grow your organization, to grow your charity, whatever it is, it doesn't work. Nine times out of 10, it just does not work. And so the phrase we like to use is you cannot outsource what you've given yourself the responsibility to do. Wow. So the, what I usually say to people is, The first question you need to ask is who's wearing the CRO hat? You could also say the CMO hat. CRO would be chief revenue officer. CMO would be chief marketing officer. The point is somebody has that hat on right this second. Mm -hmm. The question is who has that hat? And what I'm saying in no uncertain terms is that if you give that hat to someone that does not work at your company or is dedicated to that function, and you give it to an outsourced provider. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't bring in a part-time CMO or a part-time CRO that serves that purpose that's technically 1099. That's that's fine, that can work. But to hand it to an agency and to think they'll run the growth of your company or the growth of your charity the way you want it to is, is fallacious at best. So the question is who wears the CRO hat? And if that person is defined, The next question is, do they have the skills to play the role? Mm -hmm. And and I like to follow that up with a little bit of philosophy because at the end of the day, uh, Peter Drucker's quote rings in my ears and it should ring in everyone's that's listening to this call, which is the business enterprise has two and only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Mm -hmm. All the rest are costs. And the spirit of what he's trying to say is, you know, the purpose of the enterprise is to gain a customer. Marketing's job is to gain a customer. Now, I use customer loosely, right? We're talking customer, client, patient, donor, whatever it means, right? I'll use customer loosely. But 
Mm -hmm. The point is, that's the purpose of your enterprise. And if you've got a social enterprise and the purpose of the enterprise is not to make profit, that's fine if you don't want to, you know, this isn't capitalism necessarily for you, that's fine. But you'll never change the world with your social entrepreneurship if you don't make money. Amen. You can't can't accomplish your mission without the cash. And you can't get the cash without the marketing. And we say marketing in really, really, you know, academic terms. Marketing is the process by which we take what we have to the market. Mm -hmm. It's not advertising. It's not PR and it's not even sales. It's the holism of all of that. How are you going to get what you have to the audience that you want to have it? And the science of that is really the spirit of what I do. And it's your responsibility, unless you've given it to somebody else. And in that case, we're talking to that person, right? (laughs) Uh, But the conversation needs to have a place where the buck stops, right? Somebody's wearing that hat. So that's where I start. And you've distinguished a number of different things. What part of my leadership training I do for 30 years, I've worked with charities doing uh, my version of strategic planning, which I call a solution map. You know, where do you want to, where do you want to be and how are you going to get there? And a, a traditional component, it, it's the same components as a strategy. It's modified for charities. And um, <clears throat> part of it is, is realizing that nonprofit is, a tax classification, not a philosophy. And the other one is to, to build into this a marketing strategy, which is not an area of my expertise. That's part of why we're talking today. Um, and I do have other collaborators who are experts in sales and who are experts in PR. And people tend to confuse all of those things. And you've, you've distinguished what those are. But you highlighted something that's a really important leadership paradigm. And it's, it's a piece of delegation. People who are leaders think they know about delegation here, do this and they forget it. That's not delegation. There's a mentoring piece that goes with that. There's a championing piece. There's an accountability installation. There's a follow-up piece, which is way different than micromanaging. So whether you're hiring somebody internally or externally, I would like to add to what you said. I agree with all of that. We still as leaders want to define the outcomes. And then we work with whoever it is to let them tell us what the metrics are. Here's the tactics we're going to use to get there. And then we as a leader, we nurture that, approve that. We're still, I think at any level, if we're not engaged, that's a problem. The trick is not to overfunction and to find somebody gifted and to be engaged enough so that we can um, tweak it. Because who knows more about our vision than us? And who understands the outcomes more than us? But we as leaders are not clear on the outcomes. And we're not clear on how to delegate and then how to manage a process. What do you feel about that? I mean, I totally agree. Inside of the context of marketing, I see the problems that you're talking about just kind of from the marketing angle, right? And so that's kind of the lens that I view things from because that's my subject matter expertise. Let me, let me make this real tactical for you, Hugh. Okay. Uh, when, once we define who that CRO is or that CMO is. And for those listening, maybe you just felt a tremendous responsibility hit your shoulders, realizing that that hat is on your head. And if that's the case, I want to relieve you because that's the first step is just realizing that it's your responsibility, right? And once you know it's your responsibility, the good news is that case study that I was talking about with 700 businesses, here's what we found. The CMO or CRO responsibility should be a strategic function. And customer acquisition, donor acquisition, whatever you want to call it, marketing departments function best when there's a strategic person whose responsibility is strategy and high-level decision-making, and when there's someone who's not in charge of strategy and is operational. They're in the weeds, right? So the good news is that if you're wearing the CMO hat today, you can do that responsibility with as little as 20 to 30 minutes a week. That's awesome, yeah. Now, I've engineered a system for that. I'm not saying it's easy. It took me a long time to build something, 
But the punchline is that you don't need to be overwhelmed by the responsibility. You just need to take it seriously. And so I've built things, Hugh, that people consider the CMO's toolkit to enable that person who's playing the CMO role part-time as it were, right? Because they're wearing 10 other hats to do that role well. But the, the mistake people make, Hugh, in my world, and I don't know if this sort of adapts itself to the other areas that you focus on, is they, they think of the CMO as the, as the end-all, be-all. They don't think of them as the strategic outlet. They think of them as strategy, execution, the kitchen sink, right? The CMO should not be in the weeds, communicating with every single vendor, trying to figure out all the details, editing the site, writing all the copy. That's not what CMOs should be doing, right? So the mistake people make is they go, oh, I need marketing. Maybe I can hire a CMO. Maybe I can hire a marketing manager. That person inherently has skills. Marketing's too broad to give it to someone and expect them to do all of it. So you've got to get more intelligent about that hire, about that function. Whether you're hiring or not is really irrelevant. The function of that role is what we're talking about. So strategy versus implementation or management, those are two different things. When I look for a marketing manager, someone to work under a CMO, I look for an ops person, someone who's operationally savvy. This is a person who never lets anything fall through the crack. They're super OCD. They never show up late. You know the type, right? They're not the person that you sort of peg as marketing person. They're actually like more of a, a, an executive assistant who happens to understand the marketing strategy well enough to take it to execution. Those are the best marketing managers. So the punchline is if you had one of those people and it was your responsibility to be the CMO, all you have to do is do a 30 minute a week meeting with a marketing manager who knows how to run marketing, who knows how to do all of the tactics. So now I don't mean tactics from the perspective of a marketing manager as a copywriter or a marketing manager's programmer or a designer. You know, those are functions you need to hire out, right? Outsource those effectively to the right provider at the right price, live with the consequence, have your marketing manager do all of it. So there is a system. It's almost like here we're getting into human capital hierarchy, but that's probably pretty similar to what you talk about in leadership, isn't that? It is. And we, we create, you know, I spent 40 years as a musical conductor and my image on the podcast is me and my tails and it's orchestrating success. And what you just defined is orchestrating success. And I would hire the best players. You know, I, I hired members of the Atlanta symphony when I was in Atlanta and they were very skilled. They were also union members and I, you know, downbeats when you start two hours later, they're done. If you paid for a two hour gig, they're either leaving or you're paying overtime. So my job as a leader is to define the results and get the most out of them. Without, and you don't micromanage them. You don't hire the best oboe player and tell them how to play the oboe. But you do tell them what you want, and you do shape the process. So you have a highly skilled um, – I bet most people haven't even thought about a COM or even had that enter their conscious. They need somebody that's an expert in this level of engagement. And, and so, to, so to have a, the best oboe player who knows how to play the oboe, well – they need the music. Now, maybe it's not music you wrote. Maybe it's music you're going to sketch and there's some improvisatory piece to it. It might be jazz, but we've got a very rigid structure. We've got very clear outcome and we know where we're going. And it's my job as a leader. It's pull leadership. It's, it's bringing the best out of all of these different distinct players. So we have a lot of players in our midst. And here's the, here's the, the barrier. It's going to be the number one objection is, oh, I can't afford that. I can't afford that. So how do you respond to a leader's comment and say, oh, that would be great, but I can't afford that? Well, it's interesting that you'd say that because people call me a marketing scientist. My clients call me a marketing scientist. And I get accused of being a mathematician because so much of what I do is the mathematics behind the customer acquisition system, right? Hmm. And in your world, you know, it might be a client or a donor or whatever. It doesn't really matter what the nomenclature is. You need to know your mathematics. You need to know the mathematics of your business. So if we think of nonprofits in a nonprofit sort of way, they don't really thrive, right? If we think of them as businesses, they can thrive. And business 
economics, you know, venture capitalists call it unit economics. Mm-hmm. For this purpose, I would call acquisition economics. You need to know your acquisition economics. You need to know what a donor or a customer or whatever is worth to your business. And when you know that number, you can reverse engineer everything else. And so to say you can't afford it is sort of saying, I've got a blindfold on, I'm, I don't know mathematics well enough, I haven't researched this topic well enough to know what I can spend to acquire more donors, customers, patients, whatever, right? And so you've got to take the blindfold off, expose yourself to the mathematics, and understand that this is a business and it is based on math and it's really simple dollars in dollars out right Hugh in the marketing world it's customers in acquisition cost out right in other words how much am I willing to pay to get a customer knowing how much they're gonna pay me to be the customer and the, the, the delta between those two or the multiple between what they're worth to you and what you're willing to pay to get them is really where all the magic is. That's where the private equity firms focus their energy. That's what venture capitalists want to know before they acquire a big company. In your world, it's probably not any different. You just maybe haven't thought of it before. But the reality is you have a customer acquisition cost right now. You have a marketing budget right now. You have a CMO right now. You just may not have defined it that way. Well, and we have uh, these social entrepreneurs are the COE, chief of everything. And part of that is their problem. They're trying to be experts in everything and do everything, and they're trying to pinch pennies. Now, I'm a, I'm a recovering Scottish Presbyterian, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'm just as guilty as anybody. <laughs> we know how to bend a penny. Um, but there's a practical side to this when we need to find really good people and get out of the way. And the reason we don't have money to do that adequately was because our marketing sucks. And um, the client acquisition in the church or the synagogue would be members or community groups, community foundations. We want to have members. And those members are or our, our local charities. There's members in, they're, they're members in mission. And they're members in, in servant leaders in the community. I, I um, abolish the word volunteer when I work with organizations like that because it's a whole different dumbing down mindset. It's where leaders in action. And so reframing the thinking, even the word nonprofit, uh, like I said, it's, it's not a philosophy. It's a tax classification. We're a tax exempt charity. We're a social benefit organization. And we don't treat our systems as important as our mission is. And our mission is going to make a huge difference. And we, we dumb down on the money part. We, with charities, we have, I'm going to save the whales. We don't care about money. We want to save the whales. Well, wait a minute. You're going to build a car, but you haven't learned to drive it, and then you're not going to put gas in it. How's it going to go anywhere? And, and so we, we need to be uh, good stewards of all the resources, including the cash flow. And so we can't achieve our mission without the fuel in the car, which is your cash flow. And churches tend to backpedal on that. And really, sales is evangelism in the church. <clears throat> I told you I grew up as a Scottish Presbyterian, and the old joke is when you cross a Presbyterian with a Jehovah's Witness, what you get is somebody knocks on the door and has nothing to say. But <laughs> most of us don't even knock on the door. Um, I'm not cutting down any particular sect, but there's a pattern of knocking on the door and, and you know, marketing your message, which is what they do in that, that denomination. Right. But we don't do that very well. So we're kind of closed in this enclave. We're not in a cloister. We're not a monastery. Um, so rethinking how we do church, how we do charities, how we do enterprise as a small business owner is, is where I live. And it's in this series of, of recordings, it's about leadership paradigms. And what you've just uncovered is a huge paradigm. It's, and it's, it's taking it off my plate, finding somebody competent and working with them to let them uh, do what we need to have done. And part of it's getting out of the way, but the other part of it is how do we select a good marketing person? So part of my work is working with leaders, selecting the right team, whether they're board members, their staff, or their people like you and me that provide goods and services for, for, for these organizations. So 
if somebody's selecting a marketing expert for a COM, either for hire or somebody, what are the what are the questions they should ask? And, and just for clarity, we're talking about CMOs, so I have dyslexia. Oh, yeah. You, okay. CMO, chief. Okay, I I put chief officing and marketing. I you know I had I'm the one just dyslexic. Doesn't really matter. CRO, CMO. <laughs> Marketing person. Yeah. Uh, you want to think of it as just the marketing executive. Yes. Uh, you know, the person, the person, I like to say, the question I always ask is, who's in charge of growing the business? And in a smaller organization, that, that's usually really easy to answer. So whoever that is. Can I make two comments before we get to your question? Absolutely. One, one of them is, the question you got to ask yourself is this. <clears throat> Do you actually have a growth goal for the organization? Mm -hmm. Is there even a target, right? Like, is that even the topic of conversation? Are we trying to grow membership at our church, as an example? And if that's the case, this is the question you ask yourself. What would it mean if I were to hit that target? And, who, and I don't know what that target is, right? That's that's on your plate. And did I hit that target last year? Mm -hmm. And if I did, that's great. How much did you hope it would have grown last year? Because my guess is that if it grew last year, it probably didn't grow as much as you wanted it to, right? Mm -hmm. And if it didn't grow last year, are you willing to do anything to solve the problem? Because if you're not willing to do anything to solve that problem, there really isn't a lot that what we're talking about is going to solve, right? And so I'm going to say anecdotally that you want to grow membership 10%. And for those listening real carefully, you might want to think to yourself, man, what would it mean to me to grow membership 10% this year? What would it mean for me to grow 10, membership 10% this month? I've grown businesses up to 235% a year. So I know what it means to grow the business over 10% per month. It's a big deal. So you have to ask yourself whether that's actually a goal, whether that's a realistic target for you, and whether you want to do it. It's certainly going to cost some money, right? But the investment will be worth it if you it's actually nine achieve. Sorry, Hugh, my, my computer tells us what time it is. So if you hear it chime in or something, it's saying, hey, dude, you know what? Right. While the commuter interrupted, let me comment on your comment before you answer the question. May I? Please. If somebody's gone through my strategy process, we're going to have measurable goals. And one of the things you said earlier, I forgot to, it triggered. We tend to, as entrepreneurs, run around and do a lot of stuff. We, we implement tactics in the absence of an overall strategy, which is what we do with marketing as well. We try this, we try this, we try this, and oh, it didn't work. You know, I tried that. It didn't work. And I say to people, okay, you know, I tried to exercise one day last year and it didn't work. So I stopped. And so there's, there's this limited uh, experiment, but that is also we're doing the tactic piece. And what you're talking about is a very important leadership paradigm. Have a plan. So I just wanted to, that's a commercial for me. Sorry. It's, it's, you know, if you do your strategy, you're going to know where your end goals are, then your marketing person, and that's a great question. So I wanted to affirm that question just by adding that little segment. So let me stop interrupting you. That was a good yeah, no, fine. I love it. And, and, you know, I'll be honest, you know, if you don't have a growth goal or growth isn't at the top of the priority list, then uh, they don't need me. You know, they probably need you, but they don't need me because I'm the growth guy. I'm the profitable growth guy, you know, yes. and if you do want growth, you know, there's so much data that I have over doing, you know, in doing this for 12 years in sort of a case study environment as a marketing scientist, you know, figuring out all the reasons why it didn't work. I know why it didn't work, Hugh. That's the punchline is they could hand me that case study and say, this is what I did. Tell me why it didn't work. Within two minutes, I would know why it didn't work. A little golden nugget. If you've been in the space long enough, this is just true of everyone who's been in the space long enough. 90% of marketing activities that fail, fail not because of the medium or the tactic of choice. And so what most people think is, mm, I tried radio 
it didn't work. Radio must not work for me, my business, my industry, my geographics, whatever, right? And the reality is the magic is never in the medium. It's always in the message. Mm -hmm. And so if you're writing something down, write that down. The magic is not in the medium. The magic is in the message. And the message is an overly simplified way to say the magic is in your entire marketing infrastructure that leads to the message that the person hears. So I'm not saying go out and just rewrite a message a million times. I'm saying your message is born of your audience itself. If you don't target the audience and segment the audience well enough, that's your first mistake that will come out in the message. The next thing is the drivers. Like what are those audiences motivated by? What are their problems? What keeps them up at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering how am I going to solve this? What are their hot buttons? Knowing the audience and their desires, motivations, drivers, et cetera, really leads you to say, okay, if I understand that audience, let's keep looking externally and let's figure out, is there anything about this industry, the competition, the solution alternatives, the other things at play that might affect my ability to speak to them on that level and to get them to want to join me and my mission, my quest, and my social entrepreneurship, right, in the purpose of our company. Because there might be competitors at bay that can beat you on price, they can beat you on this, they can beat you on that. You've got to look at some of those things. But once you define that audience, those industry drivers, those competitive drivers, you really start to look internally and you say, who are we? How, how are we going to prove our viability to this particular audience? How are we gonna position ourselves to that audience? Are we the Lexus in the market? Are we the Toyota in the market? Are we the Scion in the market? Are we the smart car in the market? Are we the Tesla in the market? Who are we? And if you know it's a church and it's about membership, it's still relevant, right? Because everybody is positioned. You're positioned in relation to the competitors in the space, and you're positioned in relation to the things that differentiate you that you can message to. So when you look at audience and drivers and competition, how that leads to positioning and differentiation, eventually, if you go through the whole process that, frankly, I've codified, you get to the message. And nine times out of 10, the marketing activity fails because of that message, but it's actually not because the person you hired to write the message is incompetent as a writer. It's usually because you're not competent as a strategist. I love it. I love it. I could have written that line. You, you, of course, I think you're brilliant. Um, go for it. That's great. <laughs> that say so, that last sentence again. It was profound. It's to you scientifically if we had time, Hugh. But the reality is the magic is in the message and not the medium. Mm -hmm. And the message is failing not because the writer who wrote it is incompetent, but because of the strategist that was behind it was incompetent. Well, it would occur to me that if you got 700 and something clients in the recession and you grew your business exponentially in the recession, that you understand marketing, that you understand how that this client acquisition thing works. And any of us in any of these institutions, we need critical mass to do what we're doing. And we need to continually grow it because we're growing our vision, which is usually way bigger than we can achieve. We, um, we're visionaries. Uh, somebody, uh, well, several people who aren't entrepreneurs say to me, do all of you entrepreneurs suffer from insanity? And I say, heck no, we enjoy it. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a way of life. And, you know, you're one of us, so I just, you know, I just put us in the same bucket. But we are individuals. However, the very things that drive us are also the thorns in our side. Our assets are our liabilities because we don't want to participate in this corporate structure. However, we need the discipline of working within a structure in order to let the full creativity of our vision materialize. And we, we tend to poo-poo the discipline part of this and the system part of it because we want the freedom as an entrepreneur 
when we don't realize, and as a musician, I know this, once we've got the music, once we've rehearsed it, once we've done all the hard work, then we're free to be creative. So there's a, there's a pathway to creating the strategy, which you've so eloquently articulated, and then getting to the side, then you can really do the work that you want to do. So there's a discipline part of this. And you said earlier, there is work in this. There's a, there's, there's no easy button, but I'm, I tell people what I do isn't an easy button. It's an easier button because people trying to do it themselves, it takes way longer and they make it way harder and they spend a whole lot of money and they say, I don't have money, but they spend it. They say, I don't have time. Then they got to go redo stuff. So let's go back to the question. This, this is all great stuff. But the question was, if somebody's going to hire a marketing specialist to come internally, externally to advise them to create a plan to help them take their brand to the market, what are the questions they should ask? That's a really hard question to answer because of the levels that we're talking about it on, right? So in, in the context of you are the CMO, you're the CRO, the person listening to this, the first question you need to ask is, okay. Well, actually, I, the person listening is the leader, the, the top leader in the organization, and they're going to be bringing in a, a, a marketing person. So how do they qualify that person, whether it's internal, external, or using a service like yours? How do they know it's the right fit for their organization? We're talking about smaller organizations here, small charities, small churches, small businesses. So I'm making the assumption, Hugh, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, that these are small enough organizations that we're talking about here that they're not going to hire that CMO. And I think it would be wearing the hat and that anecdotally, I've got to help them wear that responsibility or that hat well, right? And I'm going to take the next five minutes and help them figure out how to do that better because they're not going to shell out the four or six or $8,000 a month to bring in a real marketing ninja, right? I hate to say ninja because samurais are probably a little bit more tough than ninjas, right? It's probably... It's probably <laughs> Well, I think there's a, there's a mixture, but I think you're, the majority of people fit the category you've described. And if you educate them on that piece, then it would lead them to enough revenue to then bring on the person that you described. That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. So the cadence of this usually looks like you're wearing the CMO hat because you haven't given it to anyone else yet. Mm -hmm. And once you grow the company to a certain point, you can, which is brilliant, because you really want to be the leader. You probably don't want to wear the CMO hat long term. But under the guise of, hey, you're currently wearing the hat and there's no end in sight in terms of you're not about to give it to anyone else, first question you need to ask yourself is, do I know how to write a strategy? Mm -hmm. And so I codified a process by which you could just do that with an eye patch on and a peg leg in. And I'll stop using pirate analogies here in a minute, but you really don't need to be a samurai, you know? Mm -hmm. and, so, and I don't mean this to be a commercial at all, it's just, if you ask yourself, how do I write a marketing plan, and you don't have a disciplined step-by-step -step process, you're gonna write a bad one. That's what it comes down to, because it's just too complicated of a subject. I mean, would you agree? Like, do you feel comfortable writing an enterprise-level strategy to grow a business, and you don't have any training on the subject, right? It sounds ludicrous. So uh, that'd be like me trying to train a dog, you know? I know nothing about pets and animals, you know? I chase mountain lions for fun in the backcountry just in hopes that they'll eat me. You know, <laughs> amazing. Like that's my preferred way to die, Hugh, is I want to get eaten by a mountain lion. Okay. And the problem is, is I can't find one, dang it. Okay. But the point is, uh, if you're wearing that hat, you know, you got to know how to write a strategy. If you wrote a strategy that works, right, that's really engineered for profitable growth, that you're confident and clear on, now, now the question that you asked is really important, right? Because now you want to say, okay, who can be in the weeds on this thing? Who can manage this strategy from a day-to-day -day perspective in terms of all the deliverables, everything that needs to get done? And you don't even necessarily need to hire a full-time person to do that, but let's call that person the marketing manager. So the first question I would ask is, do you have the ability to hire full-time or part-time a marketing manager to do all the dirty work so that you can continue to be the leader and you can put on your CMO hat for just 30 minutes a week? That's it. 
And if you can do that, here's what I recommend you do in terms of asking questions around hiring a marketing manager. You basically put up a job description for an executive assistant. Mm. Sounds counterintuitive. But if you ask for a marketing person, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a yellow personality that's a little bit ADD, that's super creative, that's going to have a ton of ideas and no follow through. It's not what you want. So don't, don't post a job <laughs> anywhere that says hiring, marketing, blah, blah, blah. Like even if you said marketing manager, because people will hear that. What you want to do is you want to post a job that says something to the effect of looking for an executive assistant and then say skills need to include operational efficiencies, doing things on budget, doing things on time, not letting things fall through the cracks. And then what you do is as you interview the executive assistants, you will find one or two that has a little bit of marketing experience. Mm -hmm. That's your golden goose. Because that person will say, oh yeah, I'm really good at operational stuff, making sure nothing falls through the cracks but actually like marketing, it's your perfect hire, you know? So if you don't want to do all that, you know, we can talk later and we can probably talk on another podcast or even lead to some, them to some links where I can point them to part-time marketing managers who are already certified marketing managers that you don't have to train or go look for or hire. You can just like turnkey, boom, right? A couple grand a month and they're in your organization helping you out. Most of them work remotely, but the point is you can outsource that function. I'd say outsource because you're really just hiring a 1099 person, um, but that's a real plausibility. But then the next level underneath this marketing manager who gets everything done is the specialist, right? The tactician, the copywriter, the designer, the programmer, the person who has that subject matter expertise that's so specific that you need, to, you need to bring them in to do that specific job. So like a really common thing for us is, is like someone to administer the CRM. Let's say they were using Infusionsoft um, or something like that. Well, Infusionsoft's really complicated. Like you probably shouldn't administer it yourself. Maybe your marketing manager will have those skills. Probably not. So it might make sense to, to find somebody that has, you know, very specific skills around administering Infusionsoft. You can pay an hourly rate to whenever you need them. Well, the same goes for your graphic designers, your logo people, your website people, your hosting people, your programming people, a data scientist, I mean, on and on, YouTube experts, LinkedIn experts, anything, right? So what I'm teaching you to do here is to outsource effectively while insourcing effectively, right? And what all your insourcing is, the responsibility you already freaking have. It's the responsibility you haven't given to anyone else yet. So I'm not even actually changing the scenario. I'm just changing the paradigm with which you look at it, right? But you can insource without, you know, adding a bunch of cost by just assuming the responsibility to write the strategy. And you can definitely insource a marketing manager or hire one 1099. And then you can outsource effectively by finding specialists. What people do here, and I know you've seen this, is they get opportunistic. And I use opportunistic on, in, the, in the idea of, a, think of a continuum. Mm -hmm. And on this end is opportunism, and on this end is strategist. The opposite of a strategist is an opportunist. The opposite of an opportunist is a strategist. And the number one plague in small businesses, we get opportunistic. And I know that resonates with you because you teach leadership. You know, and what an opportunist does inside of a marketing context is they say, hmm, we need to grow. Let's go find someone to do that. And so they either hire an agency and they turn over the car keys, the wallet, the house, all the, you know, titles, <laughs> all of their clothes, every, they give them everything. They just say, run it for me. Yeah. Doesn't work. I can prove to you that it doesn't work. But more than that, some of them will say, ah, I don't know if that's the right idea. We should hire a CMO. And then they make the mistake of thinking that the CMO is like, you know, some deity of marketing, right? And they can do the strategy. They can manage the execution. They can do the execution. 
do the reporting, report to themselves, and be accountable all at the same time. I mean, how opportunistic does that sound? Yet people do it all the time. I ask people, who's running marketing? Who's running point? Our CMO, what does he do? Everything. Wait, hold on, everything? And then I interview the CMO, and the CMO says, gee, the reason why, and I don't dare tell this to the CEO, the reason why I can't do my job is because I'm writing copy, and I'm doing design, and I'm managing vendors, and I'm looking for proposals, and I'm managing our events, and I'm writing the strategy, and I'm editing the strategy, and I'm doing the reports. All you did by hiring that CMO was duplicated your problem of having too many hats on someone else. Oh, that is so spot on. You know, I talk to people every day that that fits. So you've come back to a lot of the themes without even knowing it that I teach. And my whole paradigm is to reframe leadership as a pathway to profit. And this, this series is uh, trend converting a passion to profit. And you've just tagged a lot of the major leadership decisions that lead organizations to generate and recurable income and managing that, then that income becomes profit and nonprofits need profit. It's a not for profit. We don't distribute it individually, but we have to be in the black to be able to achieve our vision and mission. Um, and so these are, I think we've given people a lot to chew on today and we could probably talk for hours on these topics. Um, how do people find you? How do people find you and your company? You know, I'm not terribly hard to find. My company's called Savavo, S-A-V-A-V-O, Savavo, um, G. Levitt, Gaden Levitt, not, not terribly hard to find. Um, if they're really looking for something, though, to take from here forward, I would recommend you would just kind of put up a, a freebie for your audience here to go to marketingsequence.com slash blue. Uh, which, uh, Hugh, correct me if I'm wrong, is B-A-L-L-O-U. You were right. Right? So marketingsequence.com slash blue. And what I've got there is I've got a five-part video training course that essentially gives you kind of the basics of how to start to formulate your strategy. So if you go there, you'll see the videos. They'll walk you through sequentially. And uh, I think it'll really help your audience kind of get going on the right trajectory. That's generous. Marketingsequence.com slash Baloo. It's a backslash, right? A forward slash, yes. A forward slash, sorry. Any other URL, yes. <laughs> um, that's great. So, G, it's just the letter G. Um, I do know somebody whose last name is G-E-E. -E, also says G. Um, you have uh, demonstrated a much higher level of competency than other people that I've spoken with. And I, I think you've hit a sore spot for, um, oh, four to 12 million companies out there <laughs> that are stuck. Um, and I find that uh, one very good leadership trait is making a decision to get out of your comfort zone and do something different to get different results. Your marketing sucks. As you heard Jeff McGee, I've stolen suck. It's S-U-C, it's halfway to success. We don't get there because we suck. And we don't get there because we're not getting out of our comfort zone and making intelligent leadership decisions, which are going to leave us to that profit. So um, that's a generous offer. As we um, pull this to a close, do you have a parting thought, a tip, or what would you like to leave people with to think about? You know, it, it's, um, I'm glad you asked that because... I think people tend to get hung up if they, if they don't feel comfortable building a strategy or they don't even feel comfortable spending a dollar to build a strategy. I think the best thing I could give them is what I call the who we are platform. And I'll illustrate this for you right now, but this is a tool you can use to immediately improve your pitch and improve your messaging and improve your ability to get a donor or a member or a patient or a customer or a client immediately using the channels you're already using. So I'll give you mine in hopes that you can model mine and create your own. And I'll give you the four or five steps that are part of this model. And it goes something like this. I believe that marketing is the reason businesses fail and the reason they succeed. And I also believe it's the only way they will grow properly. And that the rate at which a company or an organization is growing is directly related 
to the marketing acumen or knowledge and skills and infrastructure that that organization has. I also believe that marketing is a science, not an art, not a lottery, not a crapshoot. You're not at the casino. It's a process. And if you know the process, you can have success with it. Do not think of it as a science. I believe it is a process. Because I believe all these things, my mission or purpose as an organization, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's trying to provide value to the world, is to turn marketing into a science and into a predictable, followable, learnable, masterable process for people. And we believe we're doing that. The benefit to that process is clarity, confidence, and ultimately return on investment. It creates ROI. It creates bigger companies, faster companies, and better companies. So the question that I have for you is how clear are you about how to turn your marketing into a predictable, profitable process? Aiden Levitt, very, very well spoken. Thank you for sharing your intellectual property with my listeners today. I hope you have a great day and look forward to the next conversation. Thanks so much. Today's podcast is sponsored by our friends at WordSprint. Go to wordsprint.com and get a free consultation about how WordSprint can deliver your message, the right message to the right person in the right rhythm to maintain your client engagement, to maintain your donor base. It's important to build and maintain relationships with your tribe. Wordsprint.com. Go look at their site, log on, and request a free consultation, and tell them you heard that on this podcast. This is Hugh Ballou recommending Wordsprint. Thanks for listening today to the Orchestrating Success Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to stay focused on ways to redefine leadership and increase your profit. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.